Ever since human beings could talk, we've been telling stories. We continue this tradition of storytelling with our Legacy of the Plains Museum podcast. Now let's sit back and listen to these voices on the prairie winds. All right, welcome to the Legacy of the Plains podcast. Um, I'm here with my co-host, Vicki Schmidt. How are you doing, Vicki? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Dave? I am doing all right. I'm really excited about our guest today. Um, our guest is Nancy Gillis. Oh, welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, she is the former director, executive director of the John Nyhart State Historical Site, uh, and she continues to present to schools and civic groups on Nyhart's work in variety of related topics such as Native American history, cultures, and education. She also serves on the faculty at Wayne State College, Northeast Community College, the Nebraska Indian Community College, and the Little Priest Tribal College uh, from 1990 to 2017. Uh, and you teach history, anthropology, and sociology. Yes. And honors courses on Nyhart's life and work. Um, you moved to Winnebago, Nebraska in 1987 to work with the Winnebago people for the Reformed Church in America and has served as their delegate to its Native American Council. Uh, she's also active in various civic groups currently um, or previously serving on the board of the Dr. Susan uh, LaFleche uh, Peacock Hospital Board, uh, State of Nebraska Historical Preservation Office, Nebraska Folk, Folk Life Network, Atlas of Winnebago, and the Walt Hill Village Planning Commission. So how do you have time to eat? <laughs> well, I retired from teaching and then retired from the Nyhart Center. Um, but what is retirement for? I mean, I spent over 50 years in the workplace and the skills I developed, um, now I can use for the benefit of my community by serving on a variety of boards and continuing in education, which is my first love. So we need to continue um, doing what we love doing uh, right up to the moment we can't anymore. Well, that's very admirable. Uh, uh, as, as kind of remind me of my mom, who was is on a bunch of different things too, and and for the same purpose, right? To be able to give back. But um, so those that are new to the podcast, we always kind of like to get a little background and get to know our guests a little bit. So, uh, Nancy, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, I am Cherokee, Choctaw, and Muscogee, and Scots, Irish, and French. I was born and raised in Los Angeles as part of the urban Indian population, and um, uh, we traveled a lot back to uh, Arkansas for ceremonies, and so it was a very traditional Cherokee household. The language was still spoken at home by my great-grandmother, um, and but I was given a very Western education, and so I found very early that I with a foot in each of two worlds, that education was the direction I wanted to go so that I could be that bridge between Native culture and non-Indian culture. I shared at the program last night that when I was in third grade in the L.A. school system, uh, when I shared my heritage, uh, teachers said, well, you can't be Indian, there are no Indians left. And I knew that I went home to a whole house full of Native people uh, who were very familiar with their culture and the language. So I chalked that up to ignorance, but it also then started that sense in myself that this was the way I needed to be. 
Because I'm fair-skinned, I did have very dark hair until Mother Nature gave me white hair. <laughs> but um, I could um, pass and be that person whom, to whom people could ask questions that they might be uncomfortable asking of someone who was more um, traditionally looking as far as a, a Native person. Um, my father had coal black hair and black eyes. My mother looked Hispanic, but I also have relatives who were blonde and blue-eyed. Uh, so that's how I found my niche in education, and I just continue with that as best I can. I came to work with the Winnebago tribe in 1987, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and just have continued um, as a worship coordinator and working with the uh, Racial Ethnic Council for the Reformed Church in America. And that has also gained me a lot of uh, connections across Nebraska and in other parts of the country that I really appreciate and value. So tell us what some of your favorite areas of history are. Oh, that's difficult. When, um, when I was teaching American history, it was uh, the Gilded Age. So a lot going on post-Civil War through the 1920s. And uh, Henry Ford himself said that the 20th century was one damn thing after another. <laughs> and so you've, you've got all of the, you know, the politics, the technologies, uh, the changes in education. You've got the Victorianism and then the change to the Roaring Twenties. is just a, a, a very uh, interesting and complicated period in our history. Uh, when I taught world history, um, I preferred the um, uh, late Middle Ages into the Renaissance. And for the same reason, um, modern history actually begins with the Renaissance. And so uh, working with all of that material from the Renaissance, the scientific, the new farming methods, uh, the use of money and the creation of banks, and of course the artistic element. But my real love is the Native American history and cultures, uh, combining cultural anthropology in with the history of Native people, um, ancient history, and on up to contemporary times, what's happening with us now. Uh, so it, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where in history because uh, it's so rich. And you... You taught a variety of, of subjects uh, through your through your education career. Can you touch a little bit on some of those? Um, cultural anthropology um, then allowed me to touch on the subcultures in this country as well as other countries. So looking at um, other cultures and how they intermix, um, where African-American culture comes from, how that came to be, in this country, um, our Mexican-American heritage, the Asian heritage, and then subcultures such as the deaf culture and LGBT and all of those other aspects of our lives that create uh, American culture and how that um, 
happens and how it continues and changes. So cultural anthropology is more than just understanding how an artifact fits into people's lives. It's understanding how people's lives uh, impact each other. And then sociology also feeds into that, uh, learning who we are as a group and how we interact. That's what sociology does. You know, psychology tells you who you are. Sociology tells us who we are. And um, they, they all fit together so well. Well, it shows anybody that hears Nancy talk, you can definitely tell you have those mix of, of uh, knowledge bases because you, you touch on so many different aspects, not just the history, but talking about the culture and uh, the interaction. So um, we're excited about this, uh, this podcast. So, um, so we'll, we'll hang on just a minute. Uh, we'll take a little break and then uh, we'll be back to talk about um, uh, kind of the early native uh, American uh, uh, tribes. This Legacy of the Plains Museum podcast is brought to you through the generous contributions of our friends at Platte Valley Companies, Sandberg Implement, and Intralinks. Hi, this is Dave Wolf, Director of Legacy of the Plains Museum here in Gary, Nebraska. I'm inviting you to visit our new website, LegacyPodcast.net, where you'll find more information about our upcoming guests, special subjects, and the unique history of the High Plains. Be sure to like and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We would love to hear from you. Nancy and Vicki and um, Nancy most people know obviously that there were uh, Native American tribes here before Europeans settled over here but I don't think people understand a, a lot of people understand how rich and diverse the cultures uh, that were and still are today so can you kind of just briefly talk a little bit about about that sure in, in the area that we now call the United States um, well, in North America, we figure there were about 3,000 distinct tribes, population of up to 95 million Native people. And the uh, United States, as we know it now, contained about 1,000 distinct tribes. And the Great Plains area, which we're focused on, had about 28. And so each of these were distinct cultures, and they'd been here for millennium before the Europeans came. Uh, the earliest, um, now the earliest artifacts go back to 50,000 years. That's long before the last ice age. So how they got here is really not uh, a question that, that we need to tackle anymore. It's just that they were here for an extremely long time. They were definitely the first inhabitants. And... Um, out of the uh, that huge population um, and this thousand tribes, that's 
you know, about a third of that huge population would have been in what we call the United States. And those tribes are so distinct in their languages and um, their economics, uh, their political structures, and a lot of that has to do with geography. So whether they were woodlands people, whether they were Great Basin people, plains people, um, my own tribes come from the southeast, which is you know very hot and humid in the summers, and so you have um, their cultures being created by their geographical place and their sense of time and space, um, and that of course figures into their uh, spiritual practices. Uh, when you're on the Great Plains, you're aware of the tremendous storms that could come sweeping across the plain, the vast area, um, the, uh, the formations, the uh, natural rock formations and so forth. It gives you a different view of creation than somebody who is surrounded by heavy, dense forests and rivers and you know deep ravines uh, with waterfalls. So even their um, creation stories uh, differ tremendously, and a lot of that has to do with geography. Well, we just kind of talked about some of the the, the differences uh, in the groups. Um, so when Europeans first came over, what was the kind of that initial impact that they had on uh, the Native American tribes? Well, it depended on which Europeans at first. Uh, the Spanish, of course, were looking for gold and silver. They're looking for minerals. They're not really looking to settle, uh, per se. They're looking for things they can extract and send back to Spain. And the... Uh, of course, that did impose European values of economics and um, the introduction of slave labor uh, for the mining. When the French, Dutch, and the English began coming uh, on the eastern seaboard, uh, they had different um, pursuits also. Uh, the French were looking mainly for trade, and the Dutch and English were looking for trade, but the English were looking for land. And so that differed uh, how they interacted with the various tribes on the East Coast. Now, the earliest contacts we know were in the desert southwest with the Spanish, and then um, on the southern coasts, Mississippi, Florida, um, southern Texas, and so on. And that left the Plains tribes to later contact so that meant that the interactions with Europeans and the Plains tribes will be, again, completely different uh, than the, inter the early interactions um, with the other tribes. But for all of them, metal tools and utensils uh, altered the native way of life. The two pieces of technology that made the most alteration were the gun and the plow. The gun for the ability to hunt game and to protect oneself or to use as a weapon. Um, and then the plow, uh, the impact that it made, particularly on the plains, um, with the use of the land and the, the uh, attraction for more immigrants. Would you categor 
categorize most of the early in- interactions as peaceful? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, because the interest was trade. Uh, you have something I need, and I have something you need. And, of course, the first for the Plains tribes, most of the early interaction was with fur trade. And so it was beneficial to both sides because the Hudson Bay Company and the American Fur Trade Company both brought with them steel knives and kettles and firearms and um, uh, cloth, things that made life easier. And also, um, the you know, you don't trade with enemies. You have to have some common ground uh, to set up trade. And so they were peaceful. Now, occasionally, they would run into a group of people who didn't like the idea, the Arikara in particular, who did not like the idea of the fur trappers being in their territories. And although Native people did not see the ownership of land, they had certain uh, boundaries on hunting grounds. And the overlap between tribes was tolerated to a certain level. But because the resources were finite, uh, then there was competition. And the fur trade then heightened that competition and caused some hostility. Um, But as long as as the trade was seen as equal, uh, then everybody seemed to get along pretty good. So with with that early... um early contact. I mean, we have stories and we've had some people that have talked about the importance of um, uh, building those relationships because uh, just because you had like like Sacagawea coming mm-hmm. through and uh, being able to talk to other tribes for Lewis and Clark. Can you kind of expand upon that role as um, uh, as a, a benefit to the trappers? Sure. The, um, the idea of a trapper's wife uh, by marrying into one or more of the tribes, because a trapper certainly could have more than one wife, because in the tribes, uh, a man could have more than one wife. And um, she spoke her own language, but also probably spoke several other tribal dialects, and then would learn her husband's French language or German language or English language. Their children being mixed would be an advantage also because they, again, could uh, work in both worlds. And um, moving across, a fur trapper moving across to another tribe with a wife and maybe a child in tow told that new contact that this was a peaceful person. They were not going to go to war bringing their wife along. And so that was advantageous for both sides, too. And, you know, the, the knowledge of the territory um, by the women in particular and uh, their knowledge of how to survive. You know, those fur trappers came from St. Louis and New York, and they knew nothing about living in the Rockies or living in the Sand Hills. They, they knew they didn't have the survival skills. They had to develop those. And so the tribes they interacted with, and the women in particular, became their teachers, knew where the food was. I mean, we all have learned about Sacagawea and her role. I mean, she kept them alive. 
There were times that they would not have survived another day without her knowledge. And so that's, um, they became extremely important. That begins to shift. Uh, Gender roles begin to change as contact continues um, because a lot of the traders at trading posts, those that became more stationary at forts and so on, would only interact with the men. They would only trade with men. And so that began to change uh, the uh, the dynamics, even in the, the uh, Indian families with who's in charge here. Um, when the pioneers start coming through this area, uh, the trade will be with men because the men will go to meet the wagons while the women are staying in the encampment. And so the men are providing fresh meat to many of those wagon trains um, in exchange for the kettles and the cloth and the flour and coffee and sugar and so on that they now are becoming more dependent on as the game is depleted and the grasses are overgrazed by those, you know, 400,000 people coming through. And uh, at Fort Laramie, one agent um, mentioned in one day he counted 1,500 wagons coming through. And uh, so you can imagine the amount of livestock uh, that was also then um, taking over uh, what had been the bison range and the antelope. And, and so that game is being depleted, and that means the tribes are more and more dependent on what those traders bring. Now, once you get out of Nebraska uh, and you're starting to get into the upper ele- elevations, you don't have the nice tall prairie grass is anymore like you did in eastern Nebraska. No. You know, so it's already a deplete, you know, a, a, a finite resource, and now you're <laughs> depleting it with uh, with the migration. So, um, so we're gonna kind of switch gears to talk specifically about some of the U.S. government um, uh, acts and and how they treated uh, the native populations here. Uh, and you did a really good job of going down some of those. Um, uh, acts to that really influenced it. Could you kind of expand on, on some sure. of that? Sure. Um, we often don't realize that some of this started with Thomas Jefferson. When he acquired this territory in 1803, government policy was already established on the East Coast as a three-pronged attack. One is assimilation. In fact, Jefferson wanted... Uh, natives to intermarry uh, with the uh, the colonial, the new Americans, and um, um, and his reason for that was to civilize the Indians, make them more like Americans. Um, if they were not amenable to that, then the second prong is removal move them out of the way. Now, that was already happening on the East Coast from early times. Move them out of the way. And if they refused to move, then there was an extermination policy. And we can't gloss that over. It was actually exterminate them. In fact, uh, I quoted Jefferson last night. He said, nothing will reduce those wretches so soon as pushing the war into the heart of their country 
but I would not stop there. I would never cease pursuing them while one remains on this side of the Mississippi. So the removal, the pursuing, um, that's the definitive statement of an interloper. And the policies are put in place uh, to make those moves. Now, by the late 1820s, you've got Andrew Jackson, and that's when the government makes it official. That's the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and made it legal and increased the number of Native people removed. And that's the the shove to Oklahoma. And even tribes such as the Seneca in the Finger Lakes of New York, the Maidu in Northern California, are sent to Oklahoma. And of course, all of the southwestern, southeastern tribes, um, we're all aware of the five civilized tribes, as they were called, uh, moved to Oklahoma. But others were too, including some of the Plains tribes, um, the Pawnee and the Ponca uh, in particular. And, uh, but then by the time we get into the American Civil War and we have Abraham Lincoln, then we get uh, the ones that impact this part of the country the most. And that would be the 1862 uh, three acts, the Homestead Act, the Morrill Land Grant Act, and the Railroad Act. And so that was really the focus last night was the impact that those acts had in opening up this land uh, and moving the Indians out. I found it really interesting, Vicki, and I'm sure you did too, is we always kind of blame Andrew Jackson for it, right? It was This was the start <laughs> of it, and, and we really hear about the, um, the southeastern tribes that were forced there, but, but like you point out, it, it wasn't just them. There was tribes from all over right. what would become the United States. Near, nearly every tribe in what would become the United States were removed at least once, and most more than that. Um, two examples. Uh, one, the Omaha people who are on the eastern part of Nebraska along the Missouri River. Uh, they settled along the Missouri River in that area by the 1350s. And so they were there for a very long time. They were never removed um, off of their lands. Their lands certainly have shrunk but they were never forcibly removed from those lands. Just north of them is the Winnebago Reservation. And the Winnebago tribe is originally from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And they are the most removed tribe. They were removed en masse five times in 28 years. Now what you have in removals is a refugee situation. They were refugees in their own land. And you, uh, when you have these removal instances and you're moving, like with the, uh, with the Cherokee, 18,000 people from Georgia and Tennessee by foot to Oklahoma, first you're going to lose your elderly, and your elderly are your sense of who you are, your past, your language, your spiritual ways, the memory, the, the communal memory of who's related to whom, all of that, the um, creation mythologies, all of that is in our elders. And so you lose your elders on the way. 
uh, the second group that has the highest uh, death rate are uh, nursing mothers, pregnant women, and infants. And so you lose those, and you lose your sense of your future. And so what is left is a core that no longer knows who they were and have almost given up on who they can be. And so some of the social ills um, that have been you know, highlighted about Native people clear into today have their roots in that. And we're not talking ancient history. We're talking less than 100 years. And, um, you know, you can't change that uh, as rapidly as it happened. So the deterioration happened very rapidly with these removals. And the turnaround for that um, for the tribes really began in the 1950s. So this is all, uh, we're living in, in, in current history. You know, we're, we're making the history with how the Native tribes are, are working on um, creating a, a better future uh, for themselves. But we can't, um, can't ignore uh, what caused it. Hi, this is Dave Wolf, Director of Legacy of the Plains Museum here in Gary, Nebraska. I'm inviting you to visit our new website, LegacyPodcast.net, where you'll find more information about our upcoming guests, special subjects, and the unique history of the High Plains. Be sure to like and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We would love to hear from you. Nancy Gillis here uh, and Vicki, and we're going to uh, kind of go back into some of the, the acts that really impacted um, western Nebraska, eastern Wyoming, uh, where we're, the museum is at here. So um, the Homestead Act, we've already talked about. We've had a couple people come in uh, and, and show the impact of um, Americans, Europeans uh, moving in here and settling, uh, but it had a huge impact on, on the Native peoples and uh, so can you go into a little bit more about that, Nancy? Sure. The, um, the three acts all signed um, in, between 1862 and 1863. And uh, I just, the Moral Land Grant Act gets left out quite often, uh, but it's very important too. It was sponsored uh, a donation of public lands to provide colleges for the benefit of agriculture and the mechanical arts. And uh, it was the first federal aid to education. Uh, in February of 1863, Kansas State University became the first moral land grant college. Um, before the Civil War, uh, Americans were educated in engineering in only one school, and that was the uh, U.S. Uh, Academy, uh, what we call West Point, uh, the U.S. Military a Academy. And um, the lands granted for these institutions were carved out of lands either ceded or from which tribes had been forcibly removed. 
And it wasn't until 1994 that uh, Congress allowed the same land-grant benefits for tribal colleges. Um, but, you know, we have land-grant colleges here in, in Nebraska, too. And um, Lincoln, in signing these acts, uh, of course, this was pushed through Congress. All three were pushed through because it was um, a very uh, one-sided Congress. <laughs> and uh, we won't get into the whole Civil War history. Uh, but a lot of things could be pushed through uh, during that administration that had been held up. The Homestead Act was originally proposed back in the 1820s and then the 1830s, and it just could not get through uh, because the southern states uh, wanted to make sure that slavery could be expanded, and that was being curtailed. Um, and so this this is the way that uh, these Homestead Acts got through. Now, the, uh, the Homestead Act itself, uh, I'm sure all of your listeners have a good bit of information about that. Um, but uh, we talk about all the German and Irish immigrants that came through and, and took part in the Homestead Act. Um, but uh, there were single women who homesteaded. And there were also African Americans, but the African Americans could not take part in the Homestead Act until after the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, because they weren't citizens until then. And uh, Native Americans uh, could not use it at all, uh, because that, I mean, think about it, they took the land away from the Indians, so they're certainly not going to allow them to homestead it and take it back. Now, there were some homesteads taken by Native people in, in uh, Iowa and Minnesota and so forth, but uh, part of that was a trade-off that they gave up their tribal connection. Uh, it was like you can't be Indian and be a landowner. Uh, the land was advertised for um, all over Europe also, so that's why we had so many people coming who did not realize that this land was already occupied. Mm -hmm. they, they took the government's word for it that this was uh, free land. It was open to everyone. It was um, undeveloped. It was wilderness, and nobody owned it. Uh, so that was, that was the, the difference there. The Railroad Act um, also increased uh, all of the the settlement because that meant you didn't need wagons anymore. You didn't have to deal with oxen and mule teams. You could come by train and get a buckboard and go out and stake your, your land. And that, again, brought people who were not these, uh, quote, hardy pioneers. These were business people from the East who were coming to uh, settle small towns near forts and, and uh, along the railroad. And the railroad disrupted the migratory pattern of the bison and uh, the patterns of the hunt. Uh, the buffalo robes became more important for industrial leather uh, in the east, and so that further depleted um, the uh, resources for the native people. Would you talk a little bit about the people that 
did come and settle. I don't think Nebraska was probably their first choice. Oh, no. <laughs> um, they were just passing through. And that's why the early interactions between the Plains tribes and uh, the uh, the wagon trains. Uh, these were business deals, you know, fresh game. Uh, where can we find fresh water, um, trade for items? And a lot of people, uh, of course, were headed for the gold fields of California. They were headed for the rich lands of Oregon and Washington. And um, they're just passing through. And so the trade uh, was very vigorous on both sides. And they found that they could also um, uh, purchase things from the natives, such as, you know, beadwork. Um, Their clothing changed. I mean, as their, uh, you know, wool dresses and cotton dresses began to give out, and uh, we didn't quite yet have Levi's canvas pants. (laughs) So um, you find more and more of the... Um, the travelers beginning to wear buckskin, beginning to, uh, you know, have uh, decorated rifle cases and the stuff they traded for what the Indians were wearing and uh, in buffalo robes, of course. And uh, but then uh, some of them um, don't get all the way where they wanted to go. Uh, they, you know, wagons break down, people die. Um accidental death, shooting yourself was probably one of the highest uh, casualties. And, uh, of course, things such as typhus and cholera would hit a wagon train. And so the survivors didn't have enough resources to go all the way or to turn around and go back. There's a, a wonderful story of five women, they were called the turnaround women, who made it just about all the way out to California, and their husbands died, and they were not allowed to stay with a wagon train if they didn't have a man with them. And they all, they turned around and went back and got partway across Nebraska and decided, well, the heck with this, we're going to California. And so they turned around and went back. So they, you know, they made this this double trip. Yeah. Um, But the... um, uh, they start staying, and um, that makes the interaction more difficult uh, because they will um, converge around the forts, and so the, the, uh, they're fearful of native attack, and um, they're beginning to homestead in this area rather than, than going on. So there's a uh, you know, larger encroachment into the lands, and that, that um, makes the natives even more dependent on trade. And you mentioned, and, and honestly, I didn't even think about this until you said it, but um, farming in Ohio, right. Illinois, even Iowa, even western Nebraska, mm-hmm. by, by the way, is so much different than it is in the Sand Hills than it is out here. Sure. Uh, water... Uh, availability is um, infinitely times smaller. You know, yeah. we get an average 10 inches of precipitation um, during our growing season where Lincoln can get up to 20. Right. So some of that had to deal with the the struggles. So not only are you, you have people coming out here 
well, I can farm. We'll we'll be yeah. okay. And then all of a sudden, they're struggling because they're not able to raise a crop. 1880s, notoriously dry. Right. Uh, and so there's um, more stress. So there's more competition for look, other Look how, how many different homesteads Jewel Sandoz had. <laughs> you know, he moved from place to place because he, he couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the case for many of them. If you've got that heavenly, dark, dark earth you've got in Iowa, you know, there's, there's farmers out here that would kill for some of that dirt. Oh, yeah. And uh, so coming, planning on putting in a plow, not realizing that they needed to turn it into hay or sugar beets or something that was more amenable to, uh, to this climate and, and to this uh, base. I mean, the natives knew that this land was never meant to farm, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they couldn't understand why these people kept trying to plant things that wouldn't grow. <laughs> right. Well, and it wasn't until the irrigation district started right. coming, uh, right. especially in the North Platte River Valley, that that it, uh, you were able to grow um, uh, sugar beets. I mean, take a lot of water. Yeah. Corn takes a lot of water. Um, so really kind of changed yeah. the the um, effectiveness of farming. Uh, um, Roger Welsh, Nebraska's folklorist, uh, wrote a book called 40 Acres and a Fool. And it's it's about trying to homestead, um, and uh, you know make a crop of any kind, uh, where the native people could live off the land, but now it had been so depleted um, that they couldn't do that anymore, and so you get the government stepping in and creating the idea of reservations, confine them to a certain area, make them totally dependent on the government. Uh, not allow them to hunt outside of that area. Um, probably the one success reservation uh, story would be the Great Sioux Reserve. Uh, the original um, treaty uh, created uh, the reserve went clear to the Niobrara River and the Missouri Um so uh, at the far northeastern corner of Nebraska. So the Great Sioux Reserve, which encompassed the Badlands, the Black Hills, and all the way across uh, was now South Dakota and a good portion of North Dakota. Um, you know, that was uh, Sitting Bull's doing. And, uh, you know, of course, they burnt Fort Laramie to the ground. Uh, they won. But by 1868, that had had changed, and of course the um, the uh, Custer expedition finding gold in the Black Hills, and that uh, destroyed the autonomy basically of of the tribes uh, over this area, and a lot of tribes you know had to shift and had to move the um, um, uh, Arapaho split. Into a northern Arapaho and a southern Arapaho, and um, you have the placing on the reservation of tribes that had been, if if not uh, completely hostile to each other, had had competition and animosity, and they put them all together on one place, like having um, you know seven different tribes at Fort Berthold, and um, you know uh, shifting, um, putting. You know, Crow and Cheyenne together, putting Navajo and Hopi together, and 
um, that by causing conflict, they were able to um, destroy the autonomy of the tribes. Uh, the Railroad Act, we touched a little bit on it, but I think that's the, the people think the Homestead Act, and that was really what drove people out here, and it was part of it. But yeah, the Kincaid Act, you had the Railroad mm-hmm. Act that allowed uh, settlers different options to yeah. be able to, to come out here. So was there anything specific with the Railroad Act that really... Well, it allowed the railroad to own every other section of land, and um, that gave them the ability to make money um, by selling off parcels of land to start these towns. And they could control what businesses came in, um, who came in, um, how big the town got, uh, the focus of it. And you might notice as you uh, drive either north and south or east and west across Nebraska, you have a town about every eight miles, um, especially in eastern Nebraska. You go north and south along Highway 75 and 77. There's a town every eight miles. Uh, that was the distance a farmer and his wagon and team could do in a day to come in for supplies, uh, to bring produce to, to get put on the train uh, to move cattle in to put on the train and get back to his home. And so you, you have that. Also, the train needed water and fuel uh, about that distance. And so you have all these little towns scattered lo- uh, along the, the railroad. And there was no place for the Indians uh, in that. And the bison were shot from the train windows. and that further depleted the resources. This program has been made possible by the generous contributions of the following. Platte Valley Companies, Visit them at pvbank.com. Kara Baumgartner at Estetique West in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. Interlinks. Visit them at interlinks.com. Sandberg Implement. You can visit them at sandbergimplement.com. Back with uh, uh, Nancy and Vicky, and Na- Nancy, something that you said last night, and then you re kind of reopened it with uh, on our little talk today, was the gender roles, and you specifically said uh, how important the women were uh, when it came to trade, but they were very important, like the main traders almost for the tribe. Would that be safe to say? Yes, uh, traditionally, women did all the trade. Men traded in uh, horses, eventually, um, and in weaponry and uh, sacred items. But the women produced everything. So whether it was drying the meat, scraping the hides, preparing 
pelts um, for the fur trade, um, uh, making the clothing, uh, all of that was her produce. She also gathered the medicinal herbs. She um, you know, dug the prairie turnips and, and braided the temshala, as our Lakota relatives call it, and um, created everything that was needed for day-to-day life. <coughs> if a man wanted to go off with a war party, uh, the women had to approve it because uh, they needed food to pack with them, they needed clothing, uh, they needed you know new moccasins, they needed new leggings, and so forth. And uh, if the women weren't willing to provide that, they couldn't go because um, they wouldn't be able to survive much. Uh, so with the the trade with the the fur trade, uh, that still maintained the strength of the of the woman's role. But when we get into trade at the forts and trade with um, the towns uh, that spring up around the trains, uh, you know, the little railroad towns and so forth, then the Europeans are used to dealing with men only in business, and so that puts the woman on the back burner. Um, you also get the introduction of alcohol as a trade item. Now, the Hudson Bay Company outlawed uh, alcohol as a trade item by 1820, and um, the American Fur Company will do that also later because it just didn't generate the kind of quality of trade. Um, I spoke at a conference on the fur trade on women's roles uh, back in April at the Nyhart Center, and one of the things I uh, brought up was that one way women controlled that trade for alcohol was when the the pelts they would uh, tan the pelts very poorly um, so that their husbands could not get a good dollar amount for it so they wouldn't have the money to buy alcohol and um, so there were ways of controlling of the women still being in, in control but that does change because the government doesn't recognize the role of the women, and um, so the men in the tribe start um, allowing that to change also. But the women were responsible for the economic stability of a village or an encampment. So if I'm hearing you right, the things that the women produced were being traded by the men. Right. And so the men were actually trading things that had before been totally totally women's, women's work. work yeah mm-hmm. yeah and of course then they're the ones that come back and say okay I got this this much um, for this and uh, um, so you and you, then you begin to get some uh, native people who are destitute who begin to hang around the fort and um, uh, become very dependent on uh, government handout and the annuities that are under treaty obligation that the government is supposed to pay. And this is prepayment for land that had been ceded. And so it was owed to the people, but the, um, the agent then held the purse strings and was the one who 
quite often would withhold what was owed to the Native people to get them to uh, comply uh, with new rules. So that, that also changed not only the gender relationship, but uh, changed the political structure of the tribes with who was in charge, who was getting the stuff from the government, and who was being left out. You had the hang around the Fort Indians and the blanket Indians, as they were called, those traditionalists who didn't come into the fort, didn't want to interact, but they were still owed the treaty annuity goods. They just didn't get them the way they should have, which caused hostilities. Earlier you mentioned that the railroad bisected the bison population, and we haven't really talked about how important the bison were. Oh, yeah. They depended on the bison for absolutely everything. You used, um, you know, water carriers were the the bison bladder. A cooking pot was a bison stomach. Uh, All agricultural tools were made from the bones. Um, Of course, uh, the skull was used in ceremony. Uh, You had uh, utensils, uh, clothing, uh, the hides. the meat, um, everything uh, was used. Uh, the tail was used as a fly swatter. I mean, absolutely everything. We had, um, back in uh, the late 80s, we had an episode at Winnebago Public School, where, um, which the Winnebago have a herd of, of bison. And they brought in uh, a bison cow, and um, they had killed her ceremoniously. They brought her into the gym on a huge tarp, and they proceeded to skin and butcher this cow, talking about each piece and what it was used for. And it was fascinating because at the end, there was just a greasy spot on the tarp. That was all that was left. Everything had a use. So when the the railroad cuts the bison herd into a northern herd and a southern herd, and then you have um, commercial hunters coming in and killing as many as 100 a day, including William F. Cody. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have um, that depletion and the meat left to rot because all they wanted was the hides. And um, so the natives being so dependent on that um, then where do you where do you turn? Um, then you're totally dependent on the handouts of the government. So it's kind of a systematic dismantling of a culture, right? And, and purposeful, purposeful, right? Yes. Uh, and then one of the things that that you to- talked about it, the uh, worldview was a lot <laughs> different, obviously, between American and and the Native Americans where American was more individualistic, right? right. Where we're going to pull ourselves up. We, we farm for our families. Maybe a little bit into neighbors will help out every once in a while. And we still do some of that today, but it was more about the individual, where with Native Americans, right. it was more communal. Right. Uh, and, and you mentioned a couple different uh, aspects as, as of kind of destroying that with um, the more of assimilation forcing them onto reservations, putting them, um, dividing up the land. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, the Dawes Allotment Act um, in 1887 was uh, government policy 
to break up the power of the chiefs and the communal power of the tribes. So with the reservation, let's say if you had a, uh, give us a perfect rectangle uh, as a sample reservation, and uh, that rectangle of so many thousand acres, once you take count every head of household, male head of household, and um, you allot them 80 acres, But what you do is you take one brother and you give him his 80 acres in the northwest corner, and the other brother, you give him his 80 acres in the southeast corner, and they cannot work together at all. They're separated by distance. Uh, They can't live side by side. Um, Their uh, family structure uh, will begin to break down. Um, because you have um, this kinship system. Everyone is so tightly related that um, even like my grandmother's sisters, I call my grandmothers, and their daughters are my grandmothers, and their daughters are my grandmothers. I can have a grandmother younger than me. But those types of kinship systems create a network that nobody falls through the cracks. Everybody's taken care of. The elderly get fed first. The, um, uh, the protection of the, the women and the, and the children is paramount. And so everything is looked at with how will it impact us all before a decision is made. So the Western view of the individualism where we are raised communally. And so to break up that um, communal sense of living together, working together, then uh, the rest of the land, once that's all parceled out, then you have this, what the government calls surplus land that has not been allotted out. And so the government begins leasing it to non-Indian farmers or ranchers, depending on where you are, and the the land begins going out of Indian hands in a variety of illegal means. Um, There were a lot of um, uh, land, uh, quote, sold by Indians who were long dead. Um, You know, the old... uh, daily Chicago thing with, uh, you know, vote early, vote often. Right. Well, you know, sign, you know, all of the, the the people that voted who'd been, you know, in the cemetery for many years. That kind of thing was also happening with the land deals. You had long-term leases, you know, 100-year leases on Indian land for ranchers and farmers and uh, at, you know, a nickel an acre, uh, um one of the highest was $2.47 an acre. You could buy the land. Um, you could um, uh, bribe natives. Remember, they, they didn't read and write English. And so the agent could tell them, this is, you know, this is what's on the paper, sign it. You know, put your X here. And so there was a lot of fraudulent dealing. 
Uh, interestingly, uh, fur traders, you don't find fraud among the, the traders. Um, they didn't want to fraud their resource, very important resource. You know, the Indians were savvy about trade. They'd been trading for thousands of years. They were not going to take shoddy goods. But when you get to the reservation era, then uh, they're not left with those, they don't have those resources to fall back on. Uh, so the land is the only thing uh, they have. Then when uh, the head of household, that land has been allotted to, uh, when they pass away, their heirs inherit. Then after several generations, uh, we're stuck in what's called fractional heirship, where somebody maybe has uh, one twenty-fourth of an acre, and that's where their lease money comes from. Um, now, certainly there are those who get pretty good lease checks because they're also um, leasing uh, not only land use, but leasing mineral rights and, and so forth. Um, so some tribes have uh, some resources that have made them a little more prosperous than others. But the general rule is a small amount of land, you can't do anything with it. Uh, I mean, what can you do with one acre you know, in the in the uh, uh, bottoms along the river, um, so that had become problematic. But the the goal was to break up the communal strength, the political strength of the chiefs, and um, and that way of making decisions for all, uh, rather than just the individual. Another way. I think that um, our government maybe tried to destroy the culture or change it anyway, is uh, with boarding schools. Oh, And certainly. you talked about that last night. Yeah. That was really interesting. Yeah, the, uh, the boarding school idea, um, there was Indian education early. In fact, in fact uh, Dartmouth College was founded for natives. Mm. And... Um, Many natives went to Hampton Institute in Virginia, which was a black school. Um, in fact, Susan LaFleche Peacott and her sisters and brother went to Hampton Institute. Um, but the, the and, and many, uh, uh, there were some schools on the reservation uh, that allowed the children to uh, go home during the day and so forth. There was the Presbyterian Mission School on the Omaha Reservation and some others. Um, you have like the Catholic schools like Red Cloud Indian School. Now it was Holy Rosary Mission in Pine Ridge. So it was both a boarding school and a day school. Um, but then you have, uh, after the American Civil War, then you have uh, uh, William Henry Pratt, and the idea of the prisoners of war that he took to Fort Marion, and that included, of course, Geronimo, the uh, Chiricahua Apache, and those that are taken to Fort Marion, Florida, and incarcerated there. Um, but he provided them education, and it's after that that he establishes Carlisle in Pennsylvania, and the idea of the off-reservation boarding school, government-controlled, not church-controlled uh, comes to being. And that is to separate uh, the children from their culture and completely assimilate them by force. 
So you get children from Navajo Nation at Carlisle. You get children from tribes all over at, at Carlisle. Here in Nebraska, we have Genoa. And uh, Genoa was an industrial training school, which is what most of them were. Uh, the girls were trained in the domestic arts, uh, sewing, uh, cooking, baking, housekeeping, those kinds of things. And the boys were trained in blacksmithing, mechanical arts, um, uh, animal husbandry, horse breeding, cattle breeding, uh, those kinds of, of things. But one of the things I mentioned last night is when you look at the time frame, uh, the rest of America was in full-blown industrial revolution. We're in the Gilded Age. We've got automobiles. We've got telephones. We've got electricity. You know, you're talking 1890, 1900, and that's what's going on back east. And they're training these, these kids to do 18th century, 19th century jobs, which are obsolete already. <laughs> and so, you know, um, they're setting them up for failure. They did give them the basic three R's, and some went on to higher education, um, but most lost their language. Um, they're piled together so that there, there's no connection to their culture. Many uh, were sent to the schools at five years old and did not see members of their family again until they got out of school at 16 or 17 years old. And they go home and they can't speak to their parents. And, um, you know, the, the abuse... Uh, of course, there's a long history of sexual abuse, um, uh, physical abuse, and of course, emotional abuse. Even something as simple as the day that they get there, uh, all of their personal items were taken away and their hair was cut. And for a Native person, uh, especially a boy, his hair is not cut unless he's in mourning. So these children were in perpetual mourning and that's the way I look at it. They spent years in perpetual mourning, and many of them committed suicide, and many died um, of, of disease, but of things that were treatable or curable. Um, but there was no, no sense that I have to, have to make it. Now, on the other hand, it's not all doom and gloom, because... Um, my uh, adopted Lakota brother, Charles Trimble, he went to uh, Holy Rosary in Pine Ridge, as did, uh, he was number 13 of 13 children, and all of his elder siblings had gone there, and he said he got three meals a day, he got clean clothes, he had a bed of his own, and um, he had friends, he had activities to do, and he knew that at home, in uh, the village of Wambli, that his family was hungry. And so that was one benefit that many people who went to boarding schools mentioned. Um, it wasn't the education that was so important. It was that they were not starving, and some of the people at home were. Uh, especially during the Depression in the 1930s, 
having kids in boarding school meant that you knew that your kids were being fed. And um, yeah, and that, that that hurts. And there's a lot of um, negative impact that's intergenerational because of that. Um, we are trying to, to make a, a turnaround. Most of the Indian boarding schools are tribally controlled now. And uh, so you have kids wanting to go to some of the boarding schools, such as Sherman Indian School in Los Angeles in Riverside, California. It's got a wonderful reputation. A lot of our, our kids from uh, Winnebago and, and uh, Macy and so on go to Flandreau and Pier. Um, to go to school. And, and there are programs like NMED, Indians in Medicine, where kids who have an interest in the medical field all through high school can go to summer school that is focused on preparing them for uh, the medical field. So the, the schools have changed, but we're still dealing with the trauma of the history because those schools, like um, I think Genoa uh, closed down in '34. But some of them continued until the 1950s. Um, and it's sad to say the, the difference between the Catholic mission schools and the Protestant mission schools was tremendous. The Catholic schools allowed them to use their language, wanted the scriptures translated into their language. Uh, the Jesuit schools in particular, you know, the Jesuits were an educational branch and so the Jesuits learned Lakota, and they learned Ojibwa. And, um, and yeah, they were tough. Uh, they were certainly tough, and there was abuse. But sadly, it was the Protestants, Protestant schools that insisted on no use of the language, no interaction with the culture at all. Um, and that, uh, that really did a lot of damage that we're still dealing with today. So our time's about up, Nancy. And one of the things you said towards the end of your uh, presentation um, last night uh, that I found, many of the things found interesting, uh, but was kind of, it was the the talk of Native Americans in past tense. Yes. Uh, you know, you're still here. We still mm-hmm. have tribes here. They, they still exist. Their culture is starting to come back in a sense of you know, it was lost now they're starting to regain it um, and so can you just expand on that a little bit and then uh, yeah because I think but, it's important yeah as an as an educator when I talk to um, education majors and to teachers um, I say don't leave us in the past tense if you're going to talk about how uh, we lived or what we believed at that time, bring it up to today. You know, we have have gone through several stages, and most of the tribes are in a renaissance period now. They're requiring the language to be taught in the schools. They're trying to save the remnants of the language. Now, some tribes like the Navajo have not lost their language, and the Hopi, they've not lost their language. But some other tribes have. And, um, you know, if you want to learn German, you can go to Germany and immerse yourself in a summer and come home speaking German. If we lose our languages, they are gone forever. And so much of our worldview is uh, within the language. 
uh, just like with some some other um, languages, you can't understand uh, their descriptors. You can't understand their spiritual ways if you don't understand the the language. And so that's very important. But you know, giving us more than a unit once during the year, um, we're interspersed throughout the entire textbook. If you know, you you can integrate that. I had teachers say, "Well, what? Yeah, you know, I've got to throw out all of my other material that's not politically correct." I said, "No, use it differently. Teach from it." say, not in my classroom. I'm not going to do 10 Little Indians in my classroom, but I'm going to explain to the students why we don't use those terms. Why don't we, we don't talk about Indians this way. Um, I had a math teacher, we were going through the uh, teaching across the curriculum. So trying to integrate history and language arts and mathematics and science all together. I said, you can do that. Instead of a, a mathematics worksheet that has, you know, this truck carries so much and this truck carries so much, how many miles can they go hauling this weight? I said, put a dog travoy and a horse travoy, and how much weight can each carry, and how far can they go, and what, you know, um, uh, read a treaty. Use that in your language arts and history. Read a treaty and then compare with, okay, how much of this treaty was, um, was kept and how much was broken and what are some of the other um, uh, government acts that were passed and so forth. Um, you know, take, um, you've got geometry and history and geography. You take a reservation, the boundaries, with one treaty and see how it changed with the next treaty. How many square acres uh, what, you know, what kind of resources are there there? You know, you've got all of this teaching across the curriculum that can be done, integrating natives into everyday curriculum and, you know, keeping us in there. You know, we, we've got the, the, as I mentioned last night, the, the poster children of Dr. Susan and Suzette and Pocahontas and Sakagawea and Charles Eastman. But you know, today we have uh, Senator Tom Brewer, who's Lakota, and we have Judy Gashkabas, who's the Indian Commissioner for the state of Nebraska. She's Ponca. And uh, we had Frank Lemire, who's Winnebago, who's an activist, and uh, John Trudell, who is uh, Dakota, an activist. And we've got an astronaut, and we have actors, Rodney Grant, who's in Dances with Wolves. You know, you've got all of these people living and working today. Um, as Native people, and yet they speak their language, they know their culture, and that's not uh, to the detriment of the United States. It's to the enrichment of the United States. And, you know, we are all Americans. We just happen to have been the first ones. So, thank you. <laughs> well, we'll end with that. Vicki, it's always a pleasure to get together. Thanks, Dave. Uh, and Nancy, thank you very much for coming out and speaking with our, our group last night and then with us on the podcast. So. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It was great fun. Well, we appreciate it. And uh, thanks for everybody listening. And we will catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And join us again soon 
for another Legacy of the Plains Museum podcast. We'll be listening for more Voices on the Prairie Winds. Special thanks to Caspin Haley for his musical contribution for the Voices on the Prairie Wind. Learn more at Caspin Haley Music on Facebook. Legacy of the Plains Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to collecting, preserving, and interpreting the history of settlement and agriculture of the High Plains for present and future generations. Look for Voices on the Prairie Wind podcast on Apple Podcasts and other well-known podcast apps on your mobile device or visit our website at legacypodcast.net to download, listen, or share.